everyone, and welcome to or back to the We Got Us podcast, wherever this may find you today, where it is our belief that each person is a positive idea away from their lives changing for the better. This is your host, Gabe Lee. Today on the show, I'd like to welcome Mike Sielski, the author of Kobe Bryant, The Rise, The Pursuit of Immortality. Mike's books that were released on in early 2022 is a PhD level of count of Kobe Bryant's early life from the time he was born until his first year in a Los Angeles Laker uniform in 1996. It's been more than two years since my hero passed away from this earth as I record this in March of 2022. And I can't speak on the remainder of the Kobe Bryant community, but personally, it was so, so refreshing to have fresh and new and unheard Kobe Bryant content to keep the field going in my personal and professional life. As someone who considers himself a Kobe Bryant expert, I, I learned at least like 16 new factoids surrounding the man's life throughout Mike's book. And I hope that you can learn as much about Kobe's living legacy in this conversation with Mike as I took from his book, Rise, The Pursuit of Immortality. Without further ado, here's Mike Sielski. Mike, can you give us a, can you give the listeners a tweet size summary of, uh, of Rise? Sure, Gabe. Um, I would say that I wanted to write Batman Begins for the Black Mamba. Um, I wanted to tell Kobe's origin story. Um, if you've seen the movie Batman Begins, you know that it's about how and why Bruce Wayne, the character Bruce Wayne, became Batman. And I understand how fraught that analogy is with respect to Kobe Bryant. I'm not suggesting Kobe Bryant was a superhero, though I'm sure a lot of his fans look at him that way. Um, but I wanted to tell the story of his early life. Um, uh, it was a story that I knew well, uh, having grown up in the Philadelphia area, having worked here for most of my professional life. And I felt like if I could tell that story the right way, then people, even people who were really familiar with Kobe and his career and his story could be able to read this book about this particular section uh, of his life and understand him in full as an athlete, as a man, as a cultural figure. Beautiful. And, and that's kind of what Andrew and I were saying um, in preparation for this interview. Andrew and I are, uh, are avid Kobe Bryant fans. And most of the things that people send us, we've seen before. But in this book, I think like, we've learned so, so much, like at least 16 new Kobe Bryant tidbits, right? <laughs> at least. <laughs> probably, probably more, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the nitty gritty of the book, can you, can you just take it? Let's start with the title. I think there's, the, the title is perfect for me, The Pursuit of Immortality, because, man, like, I feel like Kobe is like Icarus. He, he's, the, he's, the, he's the god that flew too close to the sun. And then on January 26th, uh, the, the, um, the pursuit of immortality was, uh, was a short, was short chain, which was, uh, was ended there. Um, how did you decide on that title as it so perfectly encapsulates Kobe's journey? Well, I think, um, you know, the, the first part of it is that Kobe really was chasing greatness from the time he was very, very young. Um, you know, this is somebody who's kind of the consummate example of a person who knew what he wanted to do and who he wanted to be at the earliest possible age, did everything that he could do to prepare himself to achieve that goal, and did everything he possibly could to pursue it and, and attained it. Um, you know, for a time, he was the best basketball player 
on the planet. And that was always his goal. And, you know, if you are the best at something, whatever your thing is, um, you, you achieve a certain measure of immortality. Um, you know, this person was the greatest actor or actress, uh, on, on the planet, or this person was the greatest guitar player or, you know, the best selling author or whatever the case may be. And Kobe got what he was going after. So in that sense, um, the title made a lot of sense, uh, just in terms of the two words, the rise, uh, that's, that's the whole point of the book is Kobe's rise to becoming, um, the athlete and figure that he became the book ends basically with, uh, his first season with the Lakers. Um, I don't get into the five championships and, you know, the controversies and, um, you know, some of the things that, that showed his flaws over his career in the league. Um, because that to me was ground that was already kind of well covered and well trod. I wanted to, to get into the story that, as you said, gay people didn't know as well. Um, and then of course, once he died on January 26, 2020, of course, he achieves a measure of immortality and death. Um, you know, any sort of cultural icon who dies young, you know, achieves that sort of status. So the title made a lot of sense at a lot of levels to me. I think that's the dope part about what you did. Um, uh, I think you mentioned with uh, on the on the interview with uh, Howard Beck, one of my favorite writers of all time, that you wanted to uh, start the book with a flight, the January 26th flight, and end the book on the flight like, getting to Los Angeles. And I think the, that you, the fact that you left it there was, to me, as good as it can be, because a, a person who may not be as familiar with the Kobe Bryant narrative can finish your book and then hop into Jeff Perlman's Three Ring Circus. It's almost like a hobbit into Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, and I wanted that. I wanted, you know, when you're a writer and you're trying to tell a story, um, narrative matters. You need, and you can't fudge the facts, obviously. So, um, you know, uh, it, the, the, the lines of demarcation to begin the narrative and end it, you know, were kind of easy to find. You know, you start with the helicopter crash. You, you then kind of flash back to Kobe's very, very early life and trace his life up until the moment after uh, his final game of his rookie season, game five of that second round series against the Utah Jazz when he shoots the four air balls in the fourth quarter in overtime. And of course, that night, the Lakers team plane lands. And before the plane is landed, Kobe has already made arrangements to go to Palisades High School so that he can spend the night shooting and working on his game. And, you know, as a writer, I wanted that feeling of expectancy in the ending. You know, yes, this is the end of the book. But the reader and the Kobe aficionado knows there is more to come yeah. in his life and in his career. Uh, and that's a story that's already familiar to people. So you kind of end the unfamiliar part and let the reader's imagination and memories take him or her uh, to what's ahead for Kobe. That's awesome. Andrew, did you have like a favorite part of the book that you wanted to ask Mike about or anything? I mean, it's, it's hard to find a favorite part because like I said, there's just so many new things that at each page I was anticipating or that I would anticipate going to the next one. It's like, there's something new I'm going to learn on this page. I don't want to, I want to slow down and just make sure that I soak it all in. And there's all these different names that I'd never heard of before, you know, coaches or friends of the Bryants or different people that, that just kind of pop up. And you, I noticed the tapestry of people that had an influence in one way, shape or form on Kobe's life that, most of the people, including myself, reading that, it's like, oh, that's maybe where he got that that desire or that 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 personality trait, or oh, he hung out with this person, so he left a mark on them. And it was just really cool to see 
to see all of that. And one thing that really stood out to me, and maybe you can talk a little bit more, Mike, is, you know, I think you the way you said it was Joe Bryant had two minutes for everybody and Kobe Bryant had two hours for everybody. And it just seemed like, I mean, I don't know, I think you might've known this, but um, so Kobe, when I was teaching fourth grade, he came to my classroom and I was doing this thing on the podcast, podcast called The Punies. Um, and so long story short, he got wind of it. He came to the classroom and there I was just an average, you know, a fourth grade teacher that Kobe Bryant superstar, you know, decided to come and spend time with kids there that day and, and see the project they were working on. And I noticed throughout the book, whether it was a person with singing the national anthem where he called her to sing it every, you know, all those games or even a player on the other team who he defeated and he looked down at them and the guy was like, you know, I'm sorry I beat you or something. And he's like, you made me better. Mm-hmm. And it's just a constant thing that, that he seemed to at a very young age have the ability to, while he just destroyed this person on the <laughs> basketball court, he's like, hey man, you inspire me to be better. Like, how do you see that personality trait? Like, where did that come from at such an early age? To- yeah, I, I think you're asking, Andrew, the nature versus nurture question. Yeah. Um, and I think it's 50-50. I think Kobe obviously had this incredible drive within him, as we've talked about, to be great. And, you know, one of the interesting things, I didn't, I didn't point this out explicitly in the book, but it's kind of a realization I came to during the researching and the writing was that you never heard Joe and Pam Bryant, his mom and dad, described as what you would call stage parents, right? Nobody ever accused them of pushing Kobe into doing anything or playing basketball when he didn't want to because he always wanted to play basketball. They didn't have to push him at all. If anything, they indulged him when it came to basketball and some of, you know, the kind of behavior at a very young age that Kobe would exhibit that, that Joe and Pam would, and particularly Pam, would never tolerate from him with respect to his academics or his behavior away from the court, they would put up with under the guise of basketball. You know, you, they're living in Italy and, and Kobe shows up at Joe's the practices for Joe's professional team in Italy and is dribbling a basketball and Joe's coach asks him to quiet down and Kobe curses out the coach, um, you know, and, and Joe and Pam just kind of said, well, that's our Kobe uh, because they knew how great he was at basketball and knew how great he was going to be. Um, so he has that inner drive, but then of course he has um, these two parents who their influence and the milieu that they create allows that drive to flourish. You know, Joe Bryant is a former NBA player, a, a high school star, a college star, uh, an NBA player whose career doesn't go the way he wants it to go. He's very, very talented and he feels unfulfilled. And after he leaves the NBA, he's kind of bitter about that. He has to go to uh, Italy and, and go abroad to kind of have his career flourish in the way he always wanted it to. Uh, and Kobe picked up on that. He picked up on the fact that Joe was not pleased with how his pro, pro career turned out. And Kobe, to a large degree, wanted to kind of... Um, clear his father's name, you know, restore the greatness to the Bryant name in the basketball world, you know, and Joe was also, if Joe had the Mamba mentality, he had it sporadically, you know, he was the kind of guy who missed the team bus to practice and, you know, didn't, you know, didn't bring it every single night in the way that Kobe did. Um, That was, that came more from Pam, from his mom, who was, Mm -hmm. who ran the household, who was the disciplinarian when it came to academics and behavior amongst the three Bryant children. Um, and so you have this kind of combination and plus you have, you know, the Bryant's place in the Philadelphia basketball scene. Joe's a great player. Kobe's uncle Chubby Cox is a great player. You know, Kobe's playing in the Sunny Hill league and 
Joe is coaching and there's a whole community there that Kobe's a part of when he's in the Philadelphia area that just kind of allows him to flourish. Um, one of his childhood friends, Ashley Howard, who's now the head basketball coach at my alma mater, LaSalle, um, said, you know, Kobe was groomed to be great. And mm -hmm. it wasn't only that. It wasn't just that he was groomed. He, he was bound and determined to be great. Yeah. But he was bound and determined to be great and had it, and grew up in an environment that allowed that determination to mm -hmm. blossom in a way it might not have otherwhere, otherwise. Yeah. That's on the, on the Mamba mentality. This is a, per, this is a great segue. I think you've referred to a lot in the book, as well as on the other interviews that you've talked to about this book, you've alluded to the, the social cost of the Mamba mentality, right? I think waking up at 4 a.m., being obsessive about your craft every single day, arriving before the before the school administration and taking the one of 25 spots. Okay. <laughs> you know, especially during all those early years that you document in the book. And now that, you know, Mike, you're a father of two young boys as well. Andrew and I spoke before in preparation for this podcast about like, let's ask, let's ask Mike about the concept of balance. Because you know, the mob mentality makes sense to Kobe Bryant to be the best possible basketball player. But basketball is, it's, it's a zero-sum game. Either you win or you lose. But in other disciplines, sometimes there's, sometimes you have to lose a couple games in order to progress in, say, entrepreneurship or et cetera, et cetera. So how do you crystallize, like, school work-life balance to your children of with the mob mentality? Yeah, I think... Gabe, I think the Mamba mentality applies. I think it's a great question you're asking. And I think to a certain degree, it's easy to say for Kobe to say, have the Mamba mentality, because in retrospect, it all worked for Kobe. He's the, he's the example where, you know, it, it, this person pulled it off, right? Mm -hmm. And I think when I speak of the social cost of the Mamba mentality, I'm talking about things like Kobe did not have the social life in high school, for instance, that a lot of his friends did. He wasn't going out on Friday nights, uh, going to the movies in the summertime or hanging out with his buddies. Um, he was playing basketball all the time. He had kind of a quasi girlfriend throughout high school. Um, it's a question of whether you would even call her his girlfriend and she would come over on a Friday or Saturday night and their dates consisted of her sitting on the couch and watching basketball videos with Kobe and his family you know, not exactly the most romantic setting for, you know, a couple of teenage kids who were dating, um, you know, and I think, I think the balance that you're talking about and, and the, the place of the mama mentality is the father of two young boys. When I speak to them, and I don't use the term mama mentality, but when I speak to them about how to maintain that balance in life, what I'm saying, what I say to them is when you are, when you have a task in front of you, or you have an activity in front of you, Immerse yourself in it. Do it to the absolute best of your ability, mm. but understand that it's not your entire life necessarily, okay? That your happiness doesn't necessarily hinge on the outcome of it, okay? Mm. Um, you know, my, I, uh, the seven-year, I have two, the, the two sons I have are 10 years old and seven years old. So we'll deal with the 10-year-old because the seven-year-old is He's seven. He's, you know, I'm not having these deep philosophical conversations <laughs> with him very often, but, but the 10 year old is a, is a really, really good academic student. Hmm. Um, and, but he can get kind of his fist can get clenched when it comes to schoolwork sometimes hmm. or in his, 
and uh, activities he does where the outcome isn't what he hoped it would be. Mm-hmm. And, or the process is more challenging than he thought it would be. And I have to take, I, I do my best to try to talk to him about, hey, look, this math homework that you're going through, this is going, it's supposed to be challenging. You're not supposed to finish it in five minutes and then be able to get on your Chromebook and enjoy yourself. You're supposed to work hard at this. Uh, my 10 year old son actually does fencing. He, he wow. you know, yeah, which is kind of cool. We got into it during the pandemic, but all, I have said to him, you know, if, if you, all we want, all my wife and I want for him out of it is to have a pastime that he can maintain his whole life, like a hobby. You know, he doesn't need to be the world's best fencer. He doesn't need to be, win a whole bunch of trophies or anything like that. But if he's going to do it, we want him to work hard at it and to try to be his absolute best at it. And if his absolute best means he loses five, nothing or 15, nothing every single match, that's okay. Just give everything you have to it and concentrate. And when, when your instructor shows you the proper way to warm up, do that to the best of your ability. Don't Mm -hmm. go through the motions. Um, Don't just settle for your two lessons a week. If you have five to 10 minutes to spare, put your Chromebook down and work on some techniques. You know, you'll get, you know, the, the, the way to eat the elephant is one bite at a time. And if you are willing to put in the time to improve a little bit every single day, you'll be surprised in time how much better you get or how much you get accomplished in whatever endeavor you're embarking on. Um, you know, I, I, I say that to him a lot about writing the book, to be quite frank. Mm. Um, you know, people ask me about how do, how do you go about writing a book? And I say what I just said, the way to eat the elephant is one bite at a time. You do a little bit every day. You stick to your routine, your routine. You make those minutes mm. count when you're working on it. Yeah. And even though you're getting your maybe you're only getting an hour or two of, of work in a particular day done. But that those hours add up day after day after day after day. And if anybody knows anything about Kobe Bryant, you know that that he looked at things exactly the same way. If I can get in an hour, an extra hour of work in the morning and an extra hour of work in the afternoon and an extra hour of work at night, there's three extra hours that I have that somebody else doesn't. And that's Mm going to make me that much better. Mm -hmm. And the key with the balance to your question, Gabe, is to not let that drive you absolutely crazy and to understand that the journey is what counts, not necessarily where you end up, destination. It sounds like a cliche, but it's true. Absolutely. And you know, that's interesting on that. That's crazy you bring that journey up because that's, it sounds like to me, well, first of all, I used to teach fourth grade. So your son's age is like, I, I taught fourth grade for five mm-hmm. years. So, so, you know, students would, particularly the way that you described, there would be some students who, if they don't get it within the first five minutes, like you said, it's a frustrating experience. And so I love how you emphasize it's okay not to, in fact, it's better not to get it immediately. And that shows that it's a challenge and everything, but it's the, the end game. And when Kobe's final speech that he gave, and he said, you know, when his daughters were there and his wife was there and he says, mm-hmm. I just want you to know that it, to some, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know, at the end, the journey matters more than the destination. And at the end, you'll find that your dreams won't come true. Something greater will. And so I really feel like it, it the Mamba mentality turned into what he would start saying is called obsessed with better. It's not perfect. It's just that getting better each day. And I feel like what you're doing with your sons and, and that's going to be not expecting perfection, but just better each day and doing your absolute best is part of that evolution of the Mamba mentality that uh, I think inspires people in a realistic way. 
Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I don't want to paint myself as father of the year or anything like that. I screw up every day as a dad. Um, uh, you know, I think all dads do. Um, but, you know, that's the important. When I was young, when I was a kid in high school, and even my first couple of years in college, I experienced a lot of anxiety. I put a lot of pressure on myself to excel, to be the best in every single thing that I did. And so when I see those traits in my sons, I naturally recoil. And it's almost like I have to I have to check myself to make sure I'm not overreacting to what they're going through and yeah. experiencing because it seems so familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it brings up memories of myself at their, at their age and even older. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, there, there's a saying in sports writing, um, because it's such a deadline uh, heavy profession, you have to be finished by 10 o'clock. Like we're doing this interview right now in a couple hours, I'll be sitting courtside at Madison Square Garden for Villanova Creighton in the Big East Championship game, and I will have a half hour from mm. the time that game ends to finish my column and get it into the Philadelphia Inquirer. Wow. And it, it doesn't matter how good it is. It's got to be done within a half hour of the game ending. And so the saying that those of us who are in the profession and have been in the profession for a while lean on is sometimes it's better to be done than good. Mm. And you don't strive mm. for that. You don't settle for that every single time, but yeah. you keep that in the back of your head so that you remember like, okay, mm. there are times where I can push myself and really, really, you know, throw myself into this project or this column or this, this math assignment. Right. And there are times where I say, okay, this is the best I can do today. Mm. You know, this is the bite I can take today. And yeah. it doesn't taste as great as some other bites of that I've had on other days, but this is the one I'm taking today. And I will, you know, as you said, Andrew, right, try, to, try to be better tomorrow. Yes. We're using this elephant uh, metaphor quite a bit here. And I, I've never been like elephant tasting, but it just doesn't seem too <laughs> appetizing to me. I have no idea. Maybe it's I a keep thinking about it as you talk about this. Take a <laughs> out of the elephant. Maybe it's a delicacy somewhere around the world that I don't know about. I just, it's one, it's those, those two things stay in my head. The way to eat the elephant is one bite at a time. Yes. Sometimes it's better to be done than good. And I, I love that, you know, that, that you, you try to, that those are good to me. Those are two good guardrails against mm-hmm. getting too stressed out about stuff that can come to consume you. Yeah, for sure. Cause I think like with your article tonight or with any article that you do for the inquiry done is definitely done has to be done. But with, I think, with the rise that you, you have more leeway to uh, strive for whatever perfection looks like there is obviously there's deadlines, but deadlines are a little bit farther down the road than 30 minutes. Yeah. And, and the process is different. You know um, I, I have a very set kind of um, length that I have to write in a column. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, you know, 800 to 900 words is what I'm shooting for in a book. A book can be as long as I want it to be. Um, you know, I was shooting for a hundred thousand words. I ended up writing 120,000 words because you're just freer to be able to riff or, you know, dive into this one scene if you want to. And as long as, again, you have like the narrative guardrails of, okay, I don't want to spend too much time on this one thing because I've got to keep the story moving. Um, you know, you'll, you'll be in good shape. Perfect. 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 All right. Two more. Can I ask one more? Is it? Right, go ahead. Can I ask one more question here? And then I know I don't know if we want to wrap up soon, but we've got, uh, we've got one more after this. Go ahead, Andrew. Okay. Sorry. So one of these, so on page 17, you know, you quote Joe Bryant when he says, we made a kid for the world. What does that mean to you? Like, how do you interpret, how do you interpret that Kobe was a, a kid to the world? Like, well, I, I think people feel like Kobe grew up before their eyes. 
because he joined the Lakers when he was 17 years old and he died when he was 41. Mm -hmm. So he was in the public eye for 24 basic for more. I mean, more than 24 years. I mean, he was in the global and national public eye. One could argue from the time his senior year at Lower Marion began. Um, So you're looking at 16 to 41, a quarter century, basically. Um, And over that period, he goes from being a young kid who's jumping from high school to the NBA to an NBA superstar, to an NBA champion, to a global superstar. And I think that's what Joe was getting at. The idea that you would see Kobe Bryant jerseys in Beijing Mm. and you would see lower Marion jerseys on the streets of Brentwood, you Mm. know, and around Staples Center. Um, That that's what Joe meant, that the world knew who his son was. Mm. And so many people on the globe identified with and appreciated Kobe one way or another, whether it was because he was a great player, whether it was the Mamba mentality, girl dad, whatever the case may be. On, on that note, let's wrap up with this one. I think a lot of the world, especially post-January 26, 2020, view Kobe as his demigod for all these things that he's accomplished in 41 years. And for Andrew and I, we're, we're similar in age. And, you know, we grew up revering this guy as the guy who could, uh, do no wrong, at least on the court, of course, in, in respect to things that we've discussed. As a contemporary of Brian's, growing up in the same area during the duration of this book, as well as uh, being in the same generation as Brian, how do, how do, how do you think you, you, your generation views Bryant post uh, his post 20, uh, January 26, 2020? Like, that, that's, inter- that's a really interesting question. Um, as a generation Xer, um, we tend to be a little more ironic and detached from stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we, it's a hard question to answer because so the people who knew Kobe at Lower Marion, who mm-hmm. were his classmates and his coaches and his teachers, mm-hmm. see him and will always see him, I think, mm-hmm. not as the global basketball superstar that he was. But as the kid who sat next to them in English class <laughs> or, the, or the kid who, when he was on the Lower Marion team bus and the bus was going over a bridge over a body of water, was white knuckling it because he was afraid of heights. Mm. That's who they remember. Mm. And part of that is because so many of them didn't continue on the journey with him, mm. right? Like he appreciated his time at Lower Marion. He stayed in touch with Greg Downer, his high school coach throughout his life. But he kind of left that behind in a lot of ways. He didn't make a point of staying in contact with the friends he had at Lower Marion. It's not like he had a core, like, I I don't know about you guys. I have a core group of like three or four, maybe five people who I still keep in touch with regularly from high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know that Kobe had that. Kobe moved in a lot of different social circles at Lower Marion, but he didn't have that core group of friends. Mm-hmm. And so when he moved on, when his star kept rising and rising and rising, the people he knew at that time kind of got in a way got left behind. Mm-hmm. So um, there's that aspect of remembering him right. in terms of my generation thinking of him. I think we probably see him. I'm not sure we see him with the same measure of reverence mm-hmm. as younger generations might um, only because of the nature of our generation. Right. I feel like I'm 46. I feel like people of my age are kind of, in some ways, rebelling is the wrong word, maybe repelling against like the immersion in 
whatever it is that you your your hobbies or pastimes are it's very easy to go down rabbit holes online or in social media and things like that and we're all just kind of like at least my friends and I are kind of like hey we're just trying to live our lives and raise our kids and we're that bridge between our parents who had no internet and still had rotary phones in their homes and you know I was just talking about this the other last night with a group of sports writer friends about how when we were in high school you had to call if you wanted to ask a girl out, you had to call her house and you might get her dad on the phone and you had to talk to the dad and he would be like, you know, why are you calling my, why are you calling my house? Who are you? I haven't met you. And you had to talk like, I'm trying to get Julie on the phone. I'm like, you know, I want to ask her to the prom. And like, <laughs> it was this right of passage that you had to go through as a kid. So we remember that and we're familiar with that. And then we're also attuned to what's going on nowadays in the age of social media and Instagram and, and all the way the culture has changed. Mm. So, you know, I think my generation appreciates Kobe mm. and is fascinated by Kobe, but we might not have the adoration for Kobe mm. that subsequent generations have had, or even those before us, people mm. who saw him as the obvious heir apparent to Michael Jordan you know, in terms of style and in terms of competitiveness and all of those things. I hope that answers your question, Gabe. I'm not sure I did. Yeah, for sure. I think that was a, that was a long and winding road there. <laughs> I think what, whatever that answer uh, encapsulated, the fact that we got to that story about having to uh, call someone. <laughs> so it's, it was, was terrifying. So for prom, that wasn't worth it. Just, just, that, just that segment of the answer. It was terrifying. You have no idea. You couldn't text her. You couldn't. You know, oh my gosh, it was Speaking you know white knuckling, right? Like Kobe white knuckled over the bridge. I, I was That's right. just listening to you <laughs> oh. all that experience. Oh my gosh! <laughs> all right, Mike, Mike's got to go. He's he's got he's got to get to MSG. Everyone, grab the book. The rise is, I, I believe, in the states. In the United States, it's available at Costco. Where, where else can you get it? Uh, Costco, Target, um, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, your local independent bookstores, uh, anywhere. Um, and thank you very much, guys. This was great. I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, and uh, thank you so much for, for your appreciation of the book. Of course. And, I, and we appreciate you as well, Mike. And uh, hopefully that your son in the world of fencing is all well. I wanted to at least include Robbie Schwartz once in this in this conversation. because Oh, Robbie's the best. So I hope your son is able to find a Robbie Schwartz in the, in the fencing world. <laughs> <laughs> he, would, he would be lucky. He'll be lucky if he does. What a He'll loyal lucky if he does. Thank you so much, Mike. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Take care.